0: Uh, My name is Brad, so happy to be here. We are going to continue our series uh, in the book of Leviticus, which if you weren't here last week, uh, you likely don't hear that very often. And we're not doing the whole book, we're just doing this part, even really just chapter 23, where God ordains and commands the people to have seven parties uh, throughout the calendar year, where he kind of says, like, your life is about my parties, Uh, And they all have these big consequences. Last week we talked about the festival of Passover, then the festival of unleavened bread that are kind of packed together, uh, where God makes even that month when it happens, the first month of their calendar when he redeems the people out of Israel. And this week we're talking about the feasts of first fruits. There's the feast of barley, then the feast of wheat. It's real complicated. I know we're like agrarians, but it's an awesome party that God commands us or commanded them to throw. Uh, but I want to start, uh, as we think about generosity and possessions, which is at the heart of these festivals, uh, me with my shoes. Uh, so we don't, you know, I make references a lot to my shoes. A lot of people notice them, and I appreciate the noticing of them. Uh, one time, Miral and I were in a generosity, uh, like, retreat, uh, and there was a point where there was this question that was asked, like, what's something that you spend money on without even thinking about it? And you had to write your answer down, almost like a newlywed game. And I wrote down, like, it was easy. Uh, then they asked me to first, what did you say? And she goes, oh, my children, uh, their development, their care, I'll spend money on them without even thinking about it. Uh, and the, the heart was to find out, what is it that you really worship? And it was like, ah, you worship. And they talked to her about that for a little bit, like, oh, maybe you worship your kids. And they're like, what about you? And I go, I was like looking at my piece of paper. I was like, I wish I could have a cooler (laughs) answer. I just wrote shoes. And the problem with me in shoes is that when I was a kid, there was this person, he's still alive, Michael Jordan, and uh, Spike Lee and others uh, told me like to be amazing is to be like Mike. And then he would hold up these shoes that were always incredibly cool, and in all environments, there was always one kid that had really cool shoes, uh, and it was never me. Uh, and then we like lived in Portland for nine years. Mirella worked for Nike. Uh, we got to be in this environment, like shoe culture galore, which is a little bit ironic up there because it rains all the time, so you can't wear cool shoes. You can only wear boots. Uh, so I was, like, was able to have this access to these shoes. It was really amazing. Uh, It created this whole rhythm for me where I'm reminded of, oh yeah, I don't have enough shoes or I don't know, I got some extra money somehow. What will I do with this? I know, shoes. I spend time looking all over the internet. I don't go into stores anymore. I don't know who does. I I will visit a Nike store in every city that I travel to. I wanna see what it's like, but I never buy shoes there. I buy them on the internet. They come in a little box, I open up the box, and you get that smell of rubber and some factory floor very far away, and I love it. Then I put them on, I lace them up, and then I put them on the shelf, and I feel cool, and I feel like, this is amazing. And what I've just purchased for myself is not just some shoes that are always, you know, I have good choices, you know, great shoes, but what I've really purchased is a story telling me that if I buy these, I become... Uh, If I buy these, I can prove to other people like I'm cool, I'm noteworthy, whatever it might be. Uh, And we live in a place and a time within this collective kind of macro story that's kind of inviting all of us to buy into this reality that uh, you can purchase things that will prove uh, what you have, what you can buy with the fruit of your labor uh, can signify security, can signify freedom. Uh, It can get you away from anxiety, depending on how many possessions or access to possessions that you have. Uh, It's a pretty, like, dazzling time of, like, how should you spend your money? Uh, And we kind of heed that call, and we enter into it uh, regularly, Uh, sometimes, oftentimes, without even thinking about it, without reflecting on it, we enter into, oh, yeah, what I produce and what I'm able to purchase with that production is who I am. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, the German theologian, said, you know, earthly possessions dazzle our eyes and delude us into thinking that they can provide security and freedom from anxiety, yet all the time they are the source of our anxiety. This idea of, oh, I really have to have that, and then the thing that you worry about is if you'll be able to purchase those things or if there'll be some sort of downturn and you'll be able to purchase less and everyone will know it and all of those things. Uh, David Foster Wallace, one of the most incredible uh, geniuses of our time, uh, was invited once to give a commencement speech, and he talked mostly about fish and water talking to each other. It's a masterpiece. But in the midst of it, he, he's an atheist, and he talks about worship almost the entire time. And all of his novels kind of get to that end as well. And he says this, If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. You'll never feel that you have enough. And it's the truth. He says, and on one level, he goes on to describe like, if you worship your body or if you worship success, he describes them all. So some of you are like, Tim Keller, so amazing. Uh, he, would, he would have even said uh, during his lifetime, he stole so much from this essay on David Foster Wall, who's not even a Christian, but he's like, this is the. so he talked about all these different things that you worship. It'll never be enough. And he says, on one level, we all know this stuff already. We all know. Like, nobody sits down and says, if I buy more shoes, I'll be happy and secure. Like, I don't write that out. We all know this on some level already. Uh, and it, but it's been codified as myths, proverbs, cliches, bromides, epigrams, parables. It's the skeleton of every great story. He says, the trick for us is keeping the truth up front in daily consciousness that what I buy or what I worship will destroy me. That was his thinking. And what I would say is that we need a reworking of worship. So often in the church, people talk about money and possessions. Uh, My goal today is not that you you fill the boxes up with cash or something like that. But really what we need is a reorientation of what we actually worship, and there's a lot of freedom in it from possessions. And I believe these festivals, as we dig in them today, uh, combine these three aspects of reality of life—worship, work, uh, and our possessions— The festivals are geared towards God orienting how the people of Israel thought about all of those things. And I think that as we do that, we're going to ultimately not learn about generosity, but we're going to learn about freedom from possessions and then a true delight in worshiping God. uh, And that would actually produce radical generosity. And so this is Leviticus chapter 23, uh, verses 9 to 22. And as I read it, you're going to be like, I don't know what's going on. Don't worry. That's why I'm going to talk for like 30 minutes afterwards. It says this, The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, When you enter the land I'm going to give you, and you reap the, its harvest, bring to the priest a sheaf of the first grain of the harvest. He is to wave the sheaf before the Lord so it will be accepted on your behalf. The priest is to wave it, on the day after the Sabbath. And on that day, you wave the sheaf, you must sacrifice as a burnt offering to the Lord, a lamb, a year old, without defect, together with its grain offering of two-tenths of an ephah, of the finest flour mixed with oil, a food offering presented to the Lord, a pleasant aroma, and its drink of offering of a quarter of a hen of wine. You must not eat any bread or roast any or roasted, or new grain, until the very day that you bring this offering to your God. This is to be a lasting ordinance for the generations to come wherever you live. And from the day after the Sabbath, and the day that you brought the sheaf of wheat of the wave offering, count off seven full weeks, count off 50 days, up to the day after the seventh Sabbath, and then present an offering of new grain to the Lord. From wherever you live, bring two loaves made of two tenths of an ephah of the finest flour, baked with yeast, and as a way of offering, of first fruits to the Lord, present with this bread seven male lambs, each a year old and without defect, one young bull, and two rams. They will be a burnt offering to the Lord, together with the grain offering and the drink offerings, of food offerings and aroma pleasing to the Lord. Then sacrifice one male goat for a sin offering and two lambs, each a year old, for a fellowship offering. The priest is to wave the two lambs before the Lord as a wave offering together with the bread of the first fruits. They are a sacred offering to the Lord for the priest. On the same day, you're to proclaim a sacred assembly and do no regular work. This is to be a lasting ordinance for the generations to come wherever you live. Then he says, when you reap the harvest... Of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Leave them for the poor, for the foreigner residing among you. I am the Lord your God. This is God's word. So, what you have here, just in general, is there's two huge festivals that happen two generosity harvest festivals. Uh, One is at the beginning of the harvest of barley. Uh, That's the first fruit of the whole calendar year, and then the next one is the beginning of the harvest of wheat that comes in different seasons. Uh, These harvests were separated by seven weeks. That's like general, that's normal. This is also the most intense, earnest work of the entire year, and God ordains that season to be a time of incredibly elevated worship. Uh, And so I know we're not an agrarian society, Uh, We don't know where food comes from, you know, like uh, they now at schools, they're taking kids on field trips to the grocery store just so kids can see fresh produce and like, there's a store and there's people and they put the, and then the kids are like, where do they come from? And the the teacher's like, from fields. And the kids are like, where? It's like Baker's Field. Uh, The Baker's Field, where the grain comes from, yeah? Uh, Anyway, we're not part of that, so I'm just going to try to bring you into it. Wheat and barley is not just what fed them; Uh, it was what fed all of their livestock, every animal that they had. Their their whole gateway to dairy or anything like that came from these animals. Even to have animals that would grow enough uh, wool that they could, you know, sheaf off and like have for it all depended on what came from these first grain harvests. They needed the wheat, they needed the barley, it was the the bedrock of the pyramid of their entire livelihood. Uh, You can even think to their history, like the whole reason they ended up in Egypt and then ended up in bondage was because there was such an intense drought and famine that there was no wheat, there was no barley. So whenever people are thinking about, oh, how could I, you know, like... When they were thinking about their work for their whole lives, they were thinking about these fields that had to produce for them. And if they didn't produce, they were going to be in all sorts of trouble. You know, we think we have uh, an urge to overwork, you know? And for all practical purposes, if we don't get our work done, it's like, oh, what happened? That app isn't as good as it could be. Oh, what happened? Like That student get, didn't get their test on time. This was like, oh, if we don't get stuff from these fields, we die generations after generations like they're in destitute poverty slavery. So they have this urge to overwork. Uh, Think about being a person that's like looking outside of your fields thinking whatever comes from those fields is the difference between starving and life. It's the difference between a life of indentured servitude, of their family disbanding, or a life of prosperity just from like what comes from these fields as they look at them. And so the urge to be people who plant and nurture and work and prepare would have been like an urge that we can't really understand. And they had to do this according to the calendar. In the late fall, they would plant their crops. They would go out there and they'd put barley and wheat into the ground. And as they would do this, they had to do what God said. They would do it for six days. They would work the land, and then they would rest for a day. The rest of the world wasn't doing that. Like, why would you take a day off when what you do with the ground is the difference in your life? But they would take a day off, and they would rest. And then in the early part of the year, the barley would begin to mature. And there would begin to be these tiny little... Uh, maturing amounts of barley coming up um, of sheafs of like grain and they would be excited and what they would do is they would go to the field and they would cut off a small section of it and they bundle it all together in this large sheaf and then they would put it on a wagon and they would go to Jerusalem. Uh, I don't know if you can notice in here but each of them they're supposed to go to the priests and take these things to the priests. The priests weren't in every little town. They're in one city. Uh, up on top of this hill, and they had to put their stuff on it and go to it. Uh, And it was this pilgrimage time as they would leave their home. uh, Can you imagine? What they're leaving behind is a field of barley ready to be harvested, but they didn't harvest it. They left it out there. They took a little bit, put it on their wagon, and they're leaving it. What if a flood comes and it's all gone? What if a fire, a forest fire, like burns it all to the ground? What if uh, crows come and eat it all up? What if there's a, a bunch of thieves who just come and harvest it because they know, like, we can do this thing and have it for ourselves? However, in a deep trust for God, they would journey to the capital city and to the temple, and they would be carrying all of this stuff to the city, their entire families. Uh, chronologically, this happens around the time of Passover, So what they would do is they'd put the lamb for Passover, they'd get all their kids into the wagon, and then they would hit the road. And you think, oh man, traffic over the grapevines and tents. Like this would be all the people in all of Israel with all of their stuff together, their goats and their lambs and their rams and all of this stuff, and no food that they're eating. And they're just going to walk and sing these songs to the city. And they would get there, and they would take, uh, they would have a Passover meal, then they would start the Unleavened Bread Festival, and then they would go in and they'd bring their barley harvest to the priests, and they would take them, and they would wave them in the air in front of God. A pretty amazing thing, as if to say, like, this is all yours, Uh, If you remember in the story of Genesis that we studied studied earlier this year, that the people, uh, the first humans, were created to cultivate and subdue the earth and to produce fruit. And so they go before God holding these sheaves of grain and they would wave them before God saying, Look what we were able to do. Like by your power, we were able to be fruitful and we cultivated the earth, we subdued it, it's all yours. And in the midst of all this, they'd be parting and celebrating for days, but that's a little odd, like this should be the time for work. But instead, they're with their whole families in this city, just kind of celebrating grain that they're not even eating. And they would give to the priests for temple work, bread, wine, food. There would be this burnt offering of a lamb that was to be a Thanksgiving thing of like, God, like this is like, we're so thankful that we're even here. Kind of celebration. They would do all of this uh, and then return home with their hearts full, you know, like full of the excitement of it all, full of the worship. Uh, They would also be heading back for the harvest of all of this barley, you know, coming over the hill, looking down on the field. Ah, it's still there. We've got to get to work. Six days they would work, one day they would take off as they harvested all of this grain really rapidly, and as they prepared for the next harvest, which would be wheat that would be coming in uh, seven weeks later. And then that's exactly what would happen. Uh, Seven weeks later, or 50 days after that first festival, when they stood there, it was on a Sunday waving the grain, 50 days later, they're bundling up the grain again. This time it's wheat instead of barley, and they would be traveling up the hill to the city all over again. And this festival, this Wheat Harvest Festival, uh, as it was coming in, they would have an even greater offering. Uh, I don't know if you counted, uh, well, you didn't because you were listening to me so intentively. But if you did count, this is pretty, uh, it's seven lambs, one bull, two rams, a whole bunch of grain, wine, bread, oil, a whole bunch of stuff. that they've been cultivating and caring for for a whole year. They pack it up again, and they go up to the temple. This time, instead of waving uh, waves of grain, they're waving these two loaves of bread. Someone like meticulously crafted and made, and it's warm and crunchy, it's leavened, it's not these crackers that they've been eating. It's like good bread. And they wave it before God too to say, look how like we were able to cultivate. This is so good. But there was also not just the Thanksgiving offering, the reason they had so many animals is there was also a peace offering and a sin offering. Now, this is earlier in chapters of Leviticus, but really the peace offering was them coming before God and saying, we want to be well relationally with you. Like we're, we're done fighting battles, we're done rebelling against you, we want to have a whole relationship with God. The sin offering was to say, We've done and we've rebelled and we've, you know, broached all of your content. We haven't trusted in you. And so, God, please, like, forgive us. That was the sacrifices. And those were the things that God did and ordained them to do. And then the next day, they would rest, even though it wasn't a Sabbath day, they would rest again, even though back home they had fields of wheat that needed to be harvested. Now, every other, like, agrarian society, in the world has some sort of harvest festival. Uh, even at the outset of harvest, like harvest is starting, they have a festival, they go to their temples and they make all of these sacrifices to their gods. Like You can look it up all over Africa, South America, Asia. Like They have these festivals. But in all of the other festivals, it's about trying to earn God to do an abundant harvest. It's to go before God or their gods and say, here's all of this stuff. Please look kindly on us and make the harvest really, really good. Like a a quid pro quo kind of celebration. Because if we don't do this, their gods will withhold. If we don't get on their favor, then like the whole system will crumble, done out of fear. Not so for the Israelites and not so for God. He commands them to do this kind of free giving away of their possessions. This offering away uh, is for them to be whole and well and to be thankful from the onset. There's not a single amount throughout the whole Old Testament about if you do these sacrifices to God, then you'll get a whole bunch more stuff in return. Instead, it's be thankful. All of these, both the the barley festival, the wheat festival, are at the onset of the harvest, before they've even been able to gather anything else up. It's all Thanksgiving feasts, uh, just like ours is kind of stolen from, but ours is poorly timed. It's at the end of the harvest, and we're like, yeah, we're thankful, because we're Americans. Why be thankful unless you have a lot of stuff? And if you don't have a lot of stuff, don't celebrate it. Like, that's kind of the idea, right? Instead, they're coming and they're giving to God, not in hopes of a better return, but just to say, thank you, God, from the outset. Pure worship, that God sustains all life, that all creatures. It's also a way of God baking into their monthly, annual rhythms that none of this stuff is mine anyway. Nothing in the field is mine. It doesn't own me, it's God's. You own it, God, it doesn't own me. Uh, And even more, The giving and the sacrifices were uh, to put up uh, and create a new status with God. The real stuff of living for. It's like, I want to thank you for everything. I want to be at peace with you. I want to be right before you and one another. Like, that's what I actually care about. Not even what comes in on my fields. Uh, And so after the wheat harvest, they would return home, they would complete the festival. Or the harvest. They would do all of the work. And you might think, man, finally, they're doing what they're supposed to do. Like, finally, they're going to get to work without interruption. Without, like, going to worship God in these random places with all of these animals. Now they're finally going to get to work. Except they don't. They only harvest up into the edge. Uh, They leave a bunch of space, rows and rows of wheat, for the poor, for the foreigner to come and to participate in the harvest themselves. So what they do is they open their gates and they allow people who did not work for it, who did not worship for it, who were not thankful for it, who did not earn it at all, they come in and they get the harvest. This kind of ultimate, final thing. You also might think, man, they really have to get a bunch done now because they've given away all of this wheat, all of this oil, all of this wine, all of this bread, 10 total lambs, and then uh, five other, you know, pieces of livestock. They better, like, reproduce all of that. But instead, what they do is they give more away. And that's what God asked them to do. So I just want to pause and say, man, what are the principles for us non-agrarians to glean from this? You know, like, what is it that we can, can learn from that? Because We don't have fields, you know. Uh, We don't have uh, things that we can just say, hey, come in and take, you know, whatever you want. Uh, There's some principles, I think, at least. You ready for them? One is, I think, might be overlooked, but God intermingles himself with intense work. Uh, He puts uh, in their minds uh, God saying, I know this is the most intense time that you have in the whole year, but I want myself in the center of it and worship of me in the center of it. It's almost like even the, the kind of labor that they would have to do all year uh, wouldn't be like, oh, we have to build all of this stuff for us. We've got to fatten these rams and lambs and all of this stuff because. You know, more of that means, you know, more for me. It's like, no, we're doing all of this. Every time they're feeding those lambs and the rams, they're like, ah, this is for God. And He wants to be in the middle of it. It's kind of like God ordaining tax accountants to go deep into worship and have retreats every weekend and have all of these special times in the month of April. Because He's like, I want them to know that I'm present in the midst of their work. And He wants to be known in those seasons. I think often for us, we think these are the seasons I just have to put my head down and do all of the work, and then I'll go back to God, you know? Or these are the times where it's like God just has me doing all this work, and then later I will trust him. Uh, Then later I'll get healthy, and then later I'll be able to go to him and worship. God's like, no, this might be the most stressful time of your life, and I want you to trust me. I want you to worship me. I also think the other principle is, is that giving... Uh, happens at the start, not at the end. He has the people give right away. The harvest comes in, and they give at the very beginning. Uh, before like, they have their expenses covered, before they have their silos filled with grain, it's from the very start. And I think that this is a, a kind of at odds with us, because we think, all right, What's my mortgage or rent payment? What's my health insurance payment? What's my car payment, my car insurance payment? How much does food cost? How much does Netflix cost? How many shoes do I want to buy? Okay, so now we have this much of expendable income. All right, now I guess that's the part I need to pray over. God, do you want me to be generous with this or not? God actually has a complete reversal of that. He's saying, no, the stuff comes in, you're gonna give me the very beginning parts, and then you're gonna trust me to cover all your expenses. And that's truly what's at stake for the people going up to the city to worship God in thanksgiving. They're trusting that the harvest back home will be enough for their entire year and for all of their needs. Um, Paul says in the book of Corinthians, he says, pray and seek the Spirit on what it is that you're supposed to give, and then give it. Obey God, give from the first, not from the last. Start by asking him, what do you want me to give? And then give that. He also, I see here, that they give out of abundance. You know, it's like, how can they give this much stuff? I guess it's a lot of stuff. Um, Months and months of labor. How do they give that kind of abundance? Abundance. Um, you know, I think often as a pastor, uh, I've been asked, how much do I have to give? It's a great question. You know, like, how much do I have to give? Uh, Which, you know, in Israel, they had all these answers, which, you know, I could be tongue in cheek. It's like, well, seven lambs, a bull, two rams. Take care of it. Bring it over to my house. We'll put it in the freezer. We'll roast it. It'll be great. No, but what I think we see through this is God is setting up this over-an-abundance-lavishing giving as if these people believe that what they have with God is an abundance, that what they already have, their position before God, is the entire blessing and abundance that they need. Uh, C.S. Lewis uh, wrote about this because he was, you know, thinking about that same question about what's proper, how much should I give, and he says, I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. If our giving habits do not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say they're too small. There ought to be things that we want to do, but we cannot do because our giving expenditures exclude them. And I love the way that he describes this as giving expenditures. You know, it's like, ah, we, you know, why don't we go on that vacation? Oh, because we're giving a lot away oh, why don't we buy that car? Oh, because we're giving a lot away. I, I catch myself telling my children all the time, like, oh, we can't get ice cream because we can't afford it, you know? And that's like partly true. Uh, and it would be a little weird for me to like Jesus juke them and be like, no, we can't buy ice cream today because we gave a lot away to other people. That's why you can't have ice cream. But that's what's true for them. Uh, think about the, the wedding feasts that were down a couple of lambs. Uh, that were the, the, the bread that they didn't eat because they gave it away. The amount of grain that they could have that they just let foreigners and poor people come in and take. But this is the view of generosity in the Bible. Give the first things because they don't own you and you don't own it. We actually, you know, do our budgets quite wrong. But God sees it really differently. He says it this way. You know, like I've given you everything, I want to give you everything that you need, and so let's not let these possessions own you in the way that the quotes were owning people that I read before. And so really every dollar that you spend on the internet is really God's dollar. Like all these dollars going to Amazon, those are God's dollars. Uh, Every blueberry you buy is God's blueberry. Uh, Every car you buy is God's car. And that, my friends, is liberating. Our possessions are not what sustain us. Our financial security is not our ultimate security. Our sense of peace, our sense of prosperity, our sense of wholeness is not tied to our bank account status. It's tied to our status before God. Um, The other thing that I see here, the principle is that they do so with thanksgiving, Uh, Not with bargaining, as we talked about before. God loves a cheerful giver. It's a party. It's a celebration. It's not a funeral. Uh, There is a festival that's a lot like a funeral. This, the giving away of stuff, is not a funeral. This is a happy, fun time. They're going like, God sustained us through the winter. He sustains us in cultivating all these things. I'm thankful. Uh, Sometimes we give as if it's like, ah, that dream is dead because I gave stuff away. God's like, no, it's actually a celebration. Uh, I had a professor in college that said we're never more like God than when we're giving things away. Like that is one of the core aspects of God is to give things away. And you're like, oh, I wanna be more like God. I just wanna have a character like God. It's like, oh, it's giving things away is the core to being like him. Uh, Then lastly, the principle is that giving produces justice. Uh, they give, the right to participate uh, in the harvest comes from God, ordaining them to allow other people to come in and work fields. And so for us, does our generosity lead to the poor, the stranger, those who do not have means, that do not have the access, do they get to reap what they didn't sow? And are we okay with that in God's entire economy? And so there it is. Those are the principles that get played out, not just in this passage, but throughout the whole Old Testament. Give it away. You'll be fine. Obey. Give. Those are the principles, right? That make They all make sense? Except the people of Israel don't do this. Like, this was like, awesome, great chapter. Love that bit about the festival. Let's figure out how to do this more efficiently. This is what they thought. How could we make these festivals in Jerusalem more of like a tourist attraction, not a pilgrimage? How could we, uh, you know, bring people in, show them the sites? They built up shortcuts around how people didn't have to travel with their animals. They could just come and buy. So there's a whole enterprise created around having the lambs and the rams and all of that stuff in the city so that all you had to do was go to it, give someone kind of this tax, and then you could go in and have the whole celebration. But it had nothing to do with you. Like, you weren't connected to the stuff at all. Uh, People became uh, really good at finding industries around the sacrifices. Priests kind of made up this religious entrepreneurial thing of like, all right, we'll bring people in in different herds. Uh, we'll do the, the, weave, the wheat shaking in front of them. They're going to have a blast. It's going to be a great show. They're going to leave. Let's not tell them anything that they're doing is wrong. Let's not call them to true worshiping God. Let's just make this a big feast, make it a spectacle. Uh, and there were really essentially two big pitfalls that occurred uh, in the people of Israel. One was a group of people that had just this incredible license. They were like, we can do whatever we want. Uh, they, they ignored all of these things and then they tried to give away the bare minimum and they created these little tiny rules that allowed them to get out of it. Uh, and then the other group was a group that was fixated on these rules. Like all they wanted to do was do it the right, proper way. In fact, after ex- the exile, there were all of these people that argued about when is the 50th day, when is the 49th day, you know? Like kind of people who stand up on... December 27th and say, "Actually, there's 12 days of Christmas, you know those people, the actually people, or actually the second day of advent is really joy, not hope, and you're doing it wrong." There were those people really like, "Are we doing this correctly?" And they both missed out intensely. Uh, the first group, they miss out because they, they see them at the center of the entire world. Uh, they see their possessions, they see it all is just theirs, and it destroys them. Uh, They think I can save myself through my own productivity, my own gathering of resources, and then I can give away token gestures to the temple. If I ever feel guilty, I'll just puff myself up and I'll give a bunch of money, and then they'll put my name on the temple wall. Then there was this other group, that second group, they miss out completely because they miss God's heart They only see God as someone that they can manipulate if they do everything correctly. Uh, They think that God is like a cosmic tax collector, an IRS agent, who's trying to balance the books and make sure that they gave the exact proper amount at the proper time. You know, like, I hate tax season, you know? And it just, like, drives me nuts because the whole time you're like, why don't you tell me how much I owe, and then I'll pay, you know? Why do I have to guess or figure it out? Like, you should... You should do the work instead. But that's how we kind of view God. It's like, I hope I gave the right amount. And both of these people miss out on God entirely, and they stop uh, experiencing God. And it's not just them. It's also us, as you can see. And then the prophets come along, and they get really upset with them for doing this whole dance. And then God makes this statement about the people of Israel through, uh, through his prophet Isaiah. And this is what God says in light of this. He says, why this frenzy of sacrifices? Don't you think I've had my fill of burnt sacrifices and rams and pulp grain fed calves? Don't you think I've had my fill of blood from bulls and lambs and goats? When you come before me, whoever gave you the idea of acting like this, running here and there, doing this and that, all this sheer commotion in the place provided for worship. God says, quit your worship charades. I can't stand your trivial religious games, monthly conferences, weekly sabbaths, special meetings, 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 meetings. Can't stand one more. This is God. Meetings for this, meetings for that, I hate them. You've worn me out. I'm sick of your religion, religion, religion. While you go right along sinning, when you put on your next prayer performance, I'll be looking the other way. No matter how long or loud or often you pray, I won't be listening. God is saying, Look, I know you're going to bottle up religion and sell it. I don't want any part of it. I know it's going to devour you. I don't want to be part of it. I don't want to play a role in that. I know you're going to use me as a good luck charm. God's saying, I'm out. I don't want to be your good luck charm. You're going to do all of these rituals and do them perfectly without seeking my presence. I'm going to leave you alone. God says to the prophets, your works are dead, your activity is dead, your generosity is dead. That's the state of affairs. It's bleak. We're all asking, how can we do the minimum? How can we do all of the rules? And God's saying, I don't want any of it, if that's what it's going to be. So the people are basically God saying, I'm out, you're dead. Uh, And now it's time for the epiphany, if you're ready for the epiphany. Uh, Jesus is killed on Passover. We talked about that last week. He's killed on Passover. He was put into the grave. Uh, He was lying in the tomb on the Saturday. The feast, the first feast of the fruit, starts the day after Sabbath, after Passover, which is the Sunday. And so when the whole city, after Jesus died, is getting ready for the priest to wave his wheat in his way, Jesus is coming out of the tomb. Uh, the, he's coming out of the tomb of the empty religion, empty injustice. Uh, he's coming out of the tomb of dead souls trying to buy God. He's coming out of the tomb of death. They're busy buzzing around these first fruits, and Jesus himself is the first fruits out of this dead-end religion. They, they didn't know that he was raised to life that morning. He was the sign of a harvest that isn't grain, that isn't bread, that isn't barley, It's not the result of men and women working in the fields, but it's of a God who's raising souls to life. The first fruits. This is what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15, 20, where he says, but Christ has indeed indeed been raised from the dead. He's the first fruits of all who've fallen asleep. For since death came through one man, a resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as Adam died all, so as in Adam all died, so in Christ all will be made alive. That first, that was a, it was a festival of the waving of grain and Jesus comes out of the tomb as that first bit of harvest. And the harvest is souls being raised to life. It's this grand reversal. God says, not only will I make the sacrifice for you, I'll be the sacrifice for you and I will also be the first fruit of a harvest that's for you. An abundant life coming after me. All of these souls raised into abundant. A first fruit, a sign of a beginning of a whole new world where evil is dealt with, where all things are passing away, and a new is coming. And So he's saying, like, all of you are trying to gain life by flaunting injustice everywhere. I am going to bring new life through my gift. Uh, You know, they're living, living in literal dead ends, Having all this money, but not knowing who God is. It's like being a zombie, alive, but not really. Alive, but dead. So then Christ dies for the dead to purchase you out of bondage, and then he makes himself that first fruit. Um, Paul, in that passage that I read, he goes on to say that if he's been raised, we're being raised right alongside him. Just like that, this waving grain before the priest, a sign that there's more fruit to come. Harvest, bountiful, sin forgiven, peace, all of that. It's happening. But there's, there's more, more epiphany. So that was like the Sunday, which was the first day of the feast. Seven weeks later, 50 days later, uh, Jesus has ascended, uh, Jesus' resurrection was something that was being celebrated by all of his disciples. They were in this room. God had said, Hey, I'm going to send my spirit to you. It's going to be really powerful. And then on that day, when the city was filled with people once again, trying to bring their wheat harvest and wave them before God with their bread and all of these other sacrifices, on that day, God pours out his spirit. on to his disciples, a revival breaks out. Thousands of women and men come to believe, and they're baptized in a new identity. Uh, They begin to live these radically generous lives, not where once a year people get in on the harvest, but then the poor have literally no need. Anywhere the church is, the poor have no need. Why? Because the Spirit empowered them. He wrote the law of God on their hearts He convicts them, he calls them, he gives them strength, he reminds them of the truth of Jesus, he fills all of them. It's like as if God is saying to those people who's trying to gain influence on God by meticulous rule following, he's saying on Pentecost, which is today, actually, that second second harvest festival, it's God saying, here's the power to know me. Here's the power to know my resurrection and to live a generous life. The church gave and it emptied itself over and over again. The old covenant, the old command was all like the poor and the sojourner get taken care of. But within the church, it's like all are seen as both poor and rich, having received every spiritual blessing from God. And so they got on with the harvest, Now becoming ministers of the gospel, leaders of churches were given what they needed. It was a phenomenal experience. People who did not sow got to reap, and that's you and me, did nothing for it. So that means for you that you've been given everything, and that God has actually reversed the festival and made it all about his generosity, You were supposed to uh, give a sacrifice, but he brought it. Uh, You were supposed to make peace with God, but he made peace. You were supposed to follow the law really well. He fulfilled it completely. You were supposed to do justice for those down and out, and instead he did justice for you who was down and out. You didn't work for this. You didn't plan it. You didn't earn it. You didn't sit back cosmically and thinking, oh, if I could get God to surrender himself for me, you did no cajoling, none of it. Reaping what you didn't sow. In Ephesians 2, Paul writes, he says, God being rich in mercy and abounding in love has caused you with all your dead-end generosity, he's caused you to be born again not a result of your work, but as a result of his work, and so we boast in Christ. And so, what is it that you worship? What is it that you trust? Where do you put your possessions? Do they own you, or does Christ own you? Uh, Tim Keller uh, said so eloquently around generosity, uh, he said, For indeed, grace is the key to generosity, like God's grace is the key to generosity. It's not our lavish good deeds that procure salvation, but it's God's lavish love and mercy. Uh, He he would describe often that, that the gospel, that what I've just described about Christ for you, is what brings about and what births generosity in people. Or put another way, he would say, uh, we're all generous only to the extent in which we understand the gospel. That's really the sign. Do you get the gospel? You can look at your, the way you view your possessions, the way you are thankful, the way you give from the first fruits, or are you withholding? Uh, so be ger- generous. Be worshipers of a God in his grace. Receive his grace. Know it for yourself. Be free, be empowered by the Holy Spirit as the recipients of a harvest you had nothing to do with, you just got brought in on it. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for the abundant life. Uh, It's incredible we get to be uh, your children. We get to be brought into a world uh, where you have defeated death and we've been made alive. I'm just uh, overwhelmed by the goodness of that, uh, the grandness of that. And so uh, lead us to delight in your grace and then to see uh, generosity added to our lives from that. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Amen.